My Car Guru, Season 11, Episode 34. Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of My Car Guru. Boy, I stirred up a hornet's nest yesterday with my Facebook post, and it was basically the same thing as my radio show slash podcast, where I was talking about my EV experience. And it's funny just to see the different opinions that people have. You can tell who the early adopters of EV technology are because they come running to the defense of the EV. And, you know, they're not so much, you know, really talking about the politics of it, which a lot of people get hung up on. Wouldn't you agree with that? A lot of people don't just, you know, they don't, they don't want to drive an EV because that's what the current administration wants everybody to do. But the conversation pretty much centers around usability and whether or not it's really a practical thing for people to buy, and I get it. That's why I did my best to try to lay out some numbers and, and show what my real-world experience was. And it was, uh, it was fine. It was absolutely fine because I didn't outdrive the range on the electric vehicle. It wouldn't have been fine had I run out of juice in Abingdon, Virginia, because basically there was nowhere to get any kind of fast power. And you need fast power when you travel, right? So uh, let's see what else is in the news. I was reading about VW. VW, you know what that stands for, right? Volkswagen, uh, the people's car. They are building an EV factory in uh, South Carolina. Why does South Carolina get so many good plants? You know, when BMW moved to Greenville, South Carolina, they transformed that place. I mean, that went from a basically a failed textile uh, area to a booming automotive area, and BMW has done pretty well there. But now they're getting a $2 billion factory in South Carolina, and they're going to produce produced. They're going to produce VWs. No, not really. They're producing Scouts. Do you remember the International Scout? Well, the International Scout, um, it was fairly successful. It was built as a competitor to the uh, Jeep and the Ford Bronco, and they sold pretty good. Uh, The problem with them is they rusted worse than, than just about anything else did. There aren't many of them left, but there are a lot of people are restoring them, and they're dropping a, a modern engine and a drivetrain in them, just like they have been doing with the Bronco, and and creates a vehicle that is worth a lot of money. The Broncos are worth a lot more when they're resto modded, is the kind of the terminology. The Scouts aren't worth quite as much, but they're really starting to show up on Bring a Trailer, and they're doing pretty well. So, how in the world did Volkswagen end up with ownership of the Scout name? Well, Volkswagen acquired Scout, uh, as far as the name is concerned, and the rights to use the name in 2021. That's when Volkswagen purchased Navistar. You ever heard of Navistar? Well, it was the company formerly known as International Harvester, who formerly produced the Scout and continued to own the name. So it's a pretty good purchase. I've seen pictures of this vehicle. They're Again, they're trying to go retro and with a very familiar body style, but it's going to be electric. Here we go again. Another perfectly good vehicle with a battery and an electric motor. Well, I guess that's the only way they can get by with, you know, bringing back these former gas hogs, you know, like the Hummer. I mean, the Hummer is now a, basically a brand. It's not really a brand. It's a model of GMC. And so the only way you can get one is electric. 
Remember what happened to Hummer? Well, in 2008, when four, or no, I'm sorry, General Motors uh, went bankrupt and the government bailed them out, then the government said, let's see, what do we need to eliminate here? Well, you don't sell many Hummers, plus they're gas hogs and they hurt the environment, so Hummer's gone. Uh, what else do we need to eliminate here? Oh, yeah, let's eliminate Pontiac. That's too sporty, and they have, you know, they have this performance image. Let's let's get rid of them too. Okay. We're done. Then they had to decide what to do with Chrysler. Ended up selling it to Fiat. So, you know, Chrysler is a foreign company now. I've mentioned their name. Their parent name is Stellantis. Isn't that great? Can you imagine the board meeting when they're trying to come up with a name for that company and they go around? What do you think? I think we ought to call it I don't know. Iacocca Motors. No, he's gone. We're not going to call it Iacocca Motors. What? Yeah, what do you want to call it? What about Stellantis? Hey, that sounds good. All for Stellantis? And they all raise their hand. Can you imagine that? I can't. Okay, what else is going on? Hyundai. Yeah, Hyundai is sticking with the physical buttons as the industry goes digital. I'm glad. You know, the last few years, We've seen the automotive screens kind of explode in size. They call them the infotainment uh, center. So now in the Mach-E, it's 15 and a half inches tall. I can't remember how wide it is, but it's push. It's there's no push buttons. Well, there's one, but everything else is on the screen, and I just don't care for that. It works really well unless you're old and your fingers are wrinkled, and your hands are cold. And then it doesn't work too good. So Hyundai is saying, okay, what we're going to do is go back to some buttons. Good for you, Hyundai. But, you know, when you have the, the bigger screens, they have fewer and fewer physical controls. Um, it's basically digital controls that are buried in menus. So you have to, you know, punch this to get to that, to punch this to get to that. Well, they said that Hyundai purposefully puts physical controls in its vehicles as a safety measure against digital controls. I would have to agree with that. That's one of the things I'm glad Ford does, like on my F-150. It has redundant uh, physical buttons or switches on the bottom that you know you can use those if you don't like to use the, the touchscreen, which I default to the buttons. Even the new Explorer has a big screen. It's kind of goofy looking, though. It's really skinny and tall, but you know, I guess they just had to, since they were using an existing body style, they had to make it work, and everybody wants these big screens now. Ford has decided to build a new Explorer. Of course, it's EV. It's for the European market. It's smaller than the American Explorer, but it's part of their plan to transition everything to electric in the European lineup by 2030. Now, they're not going to do that here, folks. They are not. At least that's what they said when I went to the meeting in Las Vegas. They said, no, sir, we're going to continue to uh, praise the internal combustion engine and continue to build vehicles for people who want to use gas, like me and probably you. Okay, I'm going to take my first break. I'll be back here in just one minute. Okay, I am back. I've been trying to hire some folks lately. And it's not like it used to be. When I say used to be, I'm talking mm, two years ago, before the pandemic. Was that two years now? I can't keep track. But it is, it is a different world out there as far as cost is concerned. I mean, the, pretty much the entry wage is somewhere around 
12 to $15 an hour. If you're paying any less than that, you're not getting any responses when you put an ad on Indeed. Uh, that was $9 an hour before the pandemic. So you can see how costs have gone up for my business and for a lot of businesses. I was looking to see what, what people are making in the auto industry. I remember, I don't know, 30 years ago, they said workers on the assembly line were making $45 an hour. Maybe that included benefits and everything. Right now, the average for a ma uh, motor vehicle manufacturing individual is about $31.07 an hour. Still pretty good money. Uh, if they're in the, into manufacturing parts, they make less, $25 an hour. Looking at, let's see what else, wholesale parts, motor, oh, motor vehicle and parts dealers. The average pay is $23.94, so I guess I'm behind the time. No, automotive, automobile dealers is $25.41. That includes technicians. Now, do you know how technicians are paid in a car dealership? Let's say you bring your car into a car dealership, and you've got, you've got to get a new alternator put on your car. So you, would, you talk to the service advisor, and he gives you a parts and labor price. Well, how can he do that? He doesn't know how long it took you know, or how long it's going to take. He looks into a guidebook, and this guidebook is it's written by different manufacturers, but what they have done is they have taken, they've done, done basically time studies to find out how, how long it does it take a good mechanic, a trained mechanic, to do particular tasks. And so that's printed in a book as a time. So let's say that for your particular vehicle, it pays two and a half hours to replace the alternator. Shouldn't take that long, but let's just use that as an example. So you take two and a half hours times the dealership's labor rate, which in, in the Tri-Cities area, it's anywhere from $100 an hour to $130 an hour. Two years ago, it was about $80 an hour. So it, that has gone up as well. So they take so that's where the labor comes from. The parts is just whatever the the cost of the alternator is from wherever you are. So if it's a Chevrolet alternator, it's probably not going to cost as much as a Mercedes-Benz alternator. But let's say they quote that price to you, it's $300. So now you've got two two and a half hours of labor plus $300 at let's say it's $100 an hour, so that's $250. That's a pretty expensive repair. Well, how does the mechanic get paid for that? Well, he gets paid by that flat rate. Flat rate is what it's called, okay? He, that two and a half hours is the flat rate pay time component of his pay. So if he's paid $20 an hour, then you're gonna, he's going to get that two and a half hours times $20 an hour. If he's paid $30 an hour, he's going to get two and, a half two and a half hours times $30 an hour. So why would one tech make more flat rate than another? Well, it's just like, you know, it could be longevity, could have something to do with it. Usually, it's because the, the highest paid tech are the ones that can produce the most and have the highest level of training. We call them master technicians. When they have passed every single test that Ford gives, they are considered a master tech. If somebody's considered a master tech, wouldn't you think that they can fix just about anything and probably beat the clock? In other words, do it for much shorter time than two and a half hours. Well, you would think that. A really good master tech might be able to do it for do it in an hour and a half. But a bad master tech, one who's not real good, and I've seen them, 
uh, it might take him three and a half hours to do it. You still get paid. I mean, you still get charged two and a half hours. Well, why shouldn't I get charged the one and a half hours from the faster tech? Because that's how he is rewarded for his knowledge and his skill. It's called beating the flat rate. And when they can beat a flat rate, you can have a technician actually work 40 hours in a week and generate 60 hours in flat rate pay. Now, they'd have to be really good to be able to do that. You know, our goal when you bring a car in for service is to, you know, of course, make it a great experience and you get in and out quickly. But it's, it's to make sure that it's fixed right the first time. That's the number one goal. When you come in with a problem, you don't want to have to come back. And typically, your better technicians are going to have a better score when it comes to fixed right first time. So if you are having to take your car back a number of times to have the same problem fixed, one of the questions that I'd want to ask the service advisor or the service manager at that point, since you'd been back several times, is, you know, who are you assigning this job to? Is this guy one of your master techs? I mean, because why can't he fix this problem? And, you know, it depends on where you are and what kind of answer you'll get. Now, you can get taken advantage of on the labor time if you're, if you're not knowledgeable about it. And who is? I mean, if you're just an average person that, that, and you don't know that much about cars, how are you going to know they're, whether or not they're overcharging you? Well, one thing you can do is before you leave the house, find out what the, the labor rate is at different shops and find out how many hours does it pay to replace an alternator. And then you can do the math yourself. And then ask them, do you have any special deals? I mean, I always ask for a deal. You know, I've talked about this on the radio show a lot. It never hurts to ask. And do you remember what the line is? That's right. Is that the best you can do? That, that will get, that'll get you some strange looks. But it'll also have them disappear. Well, let me go ask my service manager and see. Because they're not used to hearing that. Don't do it at Gateway Ford, though. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead and do it. See what they do. Um, sometimes that you know, if somebody has been in several times, if they're a good customer, and you know they recognize that somebody that's a regular customer, they'll bend over backwards to t- make sure you don't defect. And that's that's important to have that kind of relationship. So that's how the technicians are paid in the shop. How are the service advisors paid? Well, a service advisor is two things. He's a consultant, and he's also a commissioned salesperson in a lot of cases. Not all cases, but they are paid based on what the dealership sells. So it's typically a sales number. It could be a gross profit number. Uh, sometimes it's they get bonuses based on how many different operations that they sell, maybe flushes, which... You know, I, I'm not a big fan of all flushes. There are some that I am. We'll, we'll talk about that on another show, and I've done it before many times. Uh, they, they may be paid for the number of front alignments that they sell and stuff like that. And sometimes, I guess you could go into a dealership and they're selling things that your car really doesn't need. If you feel that way, then you're probably at the wrong place. Uh, again, if you know the people and you trust the people, then you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. So if they sell you a front-end alignment and they sell you a a coolant flush and you just came in for an oil change, then that's just more money that they're putting into the pot and they get a percentage of that pot. You know, it's really no different than a lot of different businesses. All businesses have some type of pay plan. You know, it could be a 
just a flat salary? You know, these dealerships that say, we, we pay our salespeople a salary. Uh, they, not really. I mean, they pay their salespeople a fixed rate of pay, but they always pay some type of a bonus based on production. I mean, that's how you motivate people. If you just pay everybody by the hour or just a salary, maybe they're diligent enough, committed enough to you know, put forth a tremendous effort every day. Might have to take their cell phones from them. But you know, if you incentivize people, if you sell this many of these, you're going to get this bonus. If you sell this many more, you're going to get another bonus. I mean, that's how you encourage people to uh, sell more stuff. Now, there's a, there's a downside of that also. And that's where the customer satisfaction scores come in. I mean, every single customer that goes through a a dealership, a franchise dealership service department, and a repair order is generated, they're going to get a survey. And if they feel like they were sold something, or they weren't taken care of the way they should have been, then they have an opportunity to uh, opportunity to complain. Now, our service advisors are paid a bonus based on their customer satisfaction scores. And we want to make sure that they're doing a great job. And we can look at each individual one. And, and if there's 50 questions on that survey, we get to see the answers on every survey for every customer. Now, we really appreciate when somebody will fill out a survey. Because if they won't, we can't fix what's broken. You understand what I'm saying? You know, if the customer, some customers will just stop, walk into your office, and tell you what happened and nicely complain. Others will rip your ears off. Still others won't say anything, and they'll go to their house, and they'll wait for the survey to come, and then they'll get you then. Or they'll compliment you then. You know, I found that people are more likely, if they're upset, they're more likely to fill out the survey. But if you really wow them, I mean, if you do a tremendous job, then they'll also take the time to reward you with a good survey. And sometimes you'll get reminded by the, or about the survey coming by both salespeople at the dealership and by uh, service advisors at the dealership because they want you to fill out the surveys. The more surveys they get, traditionally their customer satisfaction scores go up because the satisfied people complete the surveys, not just the dissatisfied people. So if you go into a store and you know, you end up getting a, a survey, fill it out because it means a lot to them, especially if you're happy. If you're unhappy, I don't know, give them a call and tell them what happened. I appreciate it when somebody tells me because typically I will go straight to the people who broke the rule or didn't do what they were supposed to do and gently explain, you know, and show them the letter or Tell them precisely what the customer said and give them an opportunity to fix it. Now, if somebody you know screws up four or five times in a row or two, three times in a row, depends on what it is, I mean, they may end up losing their job, but they should as long as it's their fault. If we didn't train them, if we didn't educate them, then that's our fault. If, if we lower the standards and we don't stay on top of these people, then sometimes things will go downhill. Not sometimes, all the time. It will. So we have to constantly test that. Um, sometimes we will have companies, we'll pay companies or pay some of our customers to call the dealership and make an appointment just so that we can see how easy or difficult the process is. 
you know, how well are the, the calls being transferred and so forth. So, but we do appreciate the surveys and, and so do the dealers that, uh, that you're doing business with. Okay, I'll take my last break. I'll be back in just a minute. Okay, I'm back. You know, interest that we pay on loans is a measure of risk. If you need a good explanation of that, then you might need to talk to a banker. They charge people that are greater risk uh, higher interest rates. If you're a good risk or a low risk, then you get the lowest interest rate. Somebody's paycheck should reflect their performance and how well they perform, how well they execute their job description. Do your employees have a job description? Do they know what they're responsible for doing? How often do you give people raises? And what is the what are the bases for those pay increases? It should be something. It shouldn't be automatic. It shouldn't be just because they show up. Uh, people have to perform. That's why I would never want to run a union shop because I think they get raises and they get uh, additional pay whether they do better or not. I think it's all should be reward-based. If you have somebody that's doing a really good job, then they need to be rewarded. But they should kind of have a a plan laid out in front of them. Don't you think they should know, well, if I do a really good job and I hit this target, then my pay is going to be this when the year rolls around. People need to know what to expect. My biggest failures in business have been because I didn't communicate the standards often enough and effectively enough. Sometimes that is the reason why people don't perform is because they just don't understand their job and or they don't think they're being rewarded for what they do. And so that conversation has to be held. And again, that's been one of my biggest errors in over the years. I'm trying to remedy that. I'm teaching my young leaders in my business to communicate. And don't do an annual review. What a waste. Do a quarterly or a monthly sit down. Just let people know how they're doing and ask them how do you how are we doing for you? You know, what kind of issues? And if you have problems with an employee, then deal with them when they happen. Don't wait. Can you imagine waiting a year to find out that you did something wrong and you never were able to correct it or to solve the problem? Makes no sense to me. Okay, well, thanks for listening to this edition of My Car Guru. I'll talk to you tomorrow.